0: Hey everyone, it's Ricardo, and here is the Popping Collars lineup for the month of September 2020. Betsy, Greg, Liz, and I discuss workplace pop culture on Popping Collars, celebrating those fictional characters who do their jobs well. Take two sees the return of our first-ever podcast guest, Chris Arnold, coming back to talk about our first-ever podcast topic, Orange is the New Black. Betsy and Greg review My Left Foot starring Daniel Day-Lewis on Going On 30. Finally, Greg and special guest Shayna Watson explore what many people are saying is the best episode of Star Trek ever, the city on the edge of forever, on this month's Sacred Six. Thanks for listening, and keep those collars hot! I am Greg and I'm Betsy and this is going on 30 a popping collar side project where we go chapter by chapter through the movies that were nominated or should have been nominated for best picture 30 years ago this month. We are looking at my left foot colon.
1: (laughs) The long title.
0: <laughs> the Christy Brown story? The story of Christy Brown? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. Colon something.
1: If it was a TV movie, it would have been the Christy Brown story.
2: He astounded audiences in my beautiful laundrette, room with a view, and the unbearable likeness of being. Now, Daniel Day-Lewis gives the greatest performance of his career in a film about life, laughter, and the occasional miracle my left foot Christine! a great exhilarating movie says Pauline Kael in the New Yorker a titanic triumph says Rex Reed intelligent and beautifully acted says Vincent Canby in the New York Times and Siskel and Ebert call it enormously entertaining. Two very enthusiastic thumbs up. One of the year's finest films. Daniel Day-Lewis, My Left Foot, the highly acclaimed film by Jim Sheridan.
0: I have a brief description of this oh, movie. Would you like to hear? Well, it? I That's
1: don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss it.
0: Super brief. It's one sentence. Ooh. I think it leaves out a lot. My Left Foot. Is the true story of Christy Brown, a man with cerebral palsy and living in poverty, who becomes an accomplished artist, poet, and writer.
1: Okay. Okay. Didn't really pick up on a lot of the poetry in the movie, but I'll I'll
0: believe you. Yeah, it's in the book, I guess. Yeah. It's poetry. Yeah. It's kind of in his writing. Betsy, what is your history with My Left Foot? I feel
1: like I should have. I had not seen it before watching it now. I'd watch clips of it. New it was nominated. New people had won for this movie. And also it feels weird that I didn't watch it because I was very into anything Irish at Mm -hmm. its point of release. So in middle school, huge U two fan, knowing about different other getting into other Irish artists I was a huge fan of In the Name of the Father, Mm. another Jim Sheridan, Daniel Day-Lewis collab, which would come several years after this. Right. But this was, I I felt like I somehow missed this one. Maybe it seemed too foreign. Maybe we'll talk about that, that there was something about it that didn't seem like a movie that my 15-year-old self was going to go see. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew that everyone said Daniel Day-Lewis is amazing. So that's what I knew about this movie.
0: So what about you? Uh, Same. I knew it as a prestige picture. Like, before there was something called meme culture, I had, like, a sense of what the Daniel Day-Lewis performance was in this movie. General thoughts on the movie. What are your initial hot takes from this?
1: So my initial hot take, because I was trying to kind of figure out how I feel about this movie. And because I don't have a prior relationship with it. And I mentioned the word foreign before, right? Because this is a foreign film, mm-hmm. me being an American, right? And thinking about, different times when foreign films or a foreign film really takes the academy by storm and people are really taken with the film, right? There's something about it that feels older than it is. And yes, of course it is shot about a previous time period of, of, you know, previous time period, but there's something about it that feels very European in the way that it's shot and filmed. They're not trying to explain anything to me about, where we are, what we're I, like I'm all over Christy Brown's Wikipedia trying to mm-hmm. figure out some things. They're not filling in a lot of gaps, which then makes me wonder kind of what is the film about in terms of being a biopic, right? But yeah. it does feel just very foreign and shot in a way that isn't there to really explain it to me. Almost in a way it reminded me a little bit of Do the Right Thing. That you're like, here's this neighborhood
0: mm-hmm. in
1: Dublin because that's where most of it takes place. And what being poor in a large family or being differently abled
0: looks Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. My first note when this movie started is that this is our first Miramax film.
1: Yeah, I took a note on that.
0: Is that icky? Does that make you feel like does the Miramax label, does it predispose you to think a certain way now?
1: I tried to divorce. Mm Mm-hmm the production company from the quality of the storytelling and filming.
0: Like it, so much stuff that used to be in the background of Miramax now is in the foreground when you watch a Miramax movie. And I, I think it does affect the way that you watch it. I have a note that, uh, I really, I really appreciated the structure of this movie using the book as the template. To kind of skip around through chapters of Christie's life. I think that that was a really good framing device for giving us the plot. Because like you said, yeah, it does throw you in. All the boyhood stuff, a little bit of the teenage stuff. I was like, man, this is going at a really frenetic pace. It feels like it's going really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just moments you know he's it's just telling moments of a life and then adding all of those moments up into sort of a whole picture of this person so in that way i, I kind of appreciated i appreciated the chapter element of it so it starts with mother it goes to hell which is his father it goes in, into like his speech therapy like all of that stuff and it uses the book as a way to sort of space those things out and those interstitials with him and Mary to kind of, you know, keep, keep everything moving.
1: Maybe I was not that smart to <laughs> figure that out. Cause I felt <laughs> I was kind of like, bam, we're over here, bam, we're over there. Like, I'm like, what's going on? Like, cause they also didn't give us this strong and maybe it would have seemed oh just like super hokey if she'd been like, Oh, and then this chapter, like right. she's, I felt that that was... I didn't feel that as strong. It felt more loose to
0: me. Oh, okay.
1: So maybe that was why I kind of felt like I was just going along a river.
0: I think it was because I was trying to puzzle out... And this actually goes into my next note. I was trying to puzzle out his view of religion. Because... He has this moment in church when he's a boy and he's not able to communicate whatever it is that he's feeling, but he looks uncomfortable and he's just had a conversation with a priest. Uh, The priest is telling him, you know, hell is for eternity. You can get out of purgatory, but you can't get out of hell. Um, And then that leads into the painting of hell, which is his angry father that's in the book. And then it cuts to sort of like, uh, an image of Sacred Heart Jesus and the Virgin in his room before he starts, like kind of lashing out about it being cold. You know, it's I, I feel like there's a lot of stuff around like this really complicated view of religion and what it was what was communicated to him as a young person, and it feels like he's skeptical of it but it's never really fleshed out and it feels like every time it gets to a point where he is sort of lashing out against religion it pulls its punches a little bit it doesn't really embrace it fully mm-hmm. and uh, there are a lot of moments in this movie where i was like man if you just go like one step forward like it r- it makes a powerful statement but you kind of pulled back from the edge a little bit too soon
1: yeah i agree with you that is that's kind of a murky Murky narrative. But I think that that's then, I mean, I look at it as the interwovenness of Catholic culture right. and
0: Irish culture. Because I guess that that's really how I watched this film, was just the images in his book lead into whatever it is that's happening in his life at that moment. The mother image was just so... Yeah, sort of stern but comforting, and then the father image was just so chaotic and threatening that it just, it, like, just seeing the image made me think, "Oh, what do I have to look forward to in this next part of the story?"
2: You all right, Christy? What's Christy doing, Sheila? Is he all right? He's strong. on a triangle a... <coughs> now well, that's a triangle that's not a triangle that's an A <gasps> what's up keep quiet all I said was what's up Sit down! Go and have a drink, Paddy. I don't need a drink. All I need is to be obeyed in my own house. (laughs) Sweet Jesus. Jesus, suffering Christ. He's a brown He's a brown all right Christy's a brown Colt where are you going buddy what do you think this man deserves a jar this is Christy Brown my son genius
0: there's, there's so much tied into parenting with this movie. It, it, I think what it does a good job of, and I'm just thinking of this now, so I'm kind of thinking through it. I think what it does a good job of is trying to figure out who are you? Like, who is Christy Brown as a person? But really, like, who are we as people? Are we ourselves? Or are we some kind of combination of who our parents were? because Christie is a, is a version of his mother and a version of his father, and not always the best parts of them and not always the worst parts of them. Sure. But he's a combination of both of them. I did, I, I rem, there's, that, there's that part where he writes the word mother on the floor, and his father picks him up and takes him to the bar and introduces him to everyone in the bar, and he says, this, this is my son, he's a brown and he never did that before because he was always ashamed of him before. Right. But now that he knows you that he can understand things it. and write, right. he claims him as a Brown and it's like, okay, so that's really, that's. And so now Christie going to live into the legacy of whatever his father is. And his father is a jerk, but also a hardworking man, you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes not. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. You yeah, know? you're
1: not really supposed to. It doesn't really give you this full picture of hating him or loving him, which I guess is the way we are in our actual relationships with each other. And it makes you wonder: like, Did he go into the go into the you know the neighborhood pub with every kid, mm-hmm. when they were baby? You're like this is you know this is Tom Brown, you
0: know, mm-hmm.
1: he's my son, and you know, yay, and you know that would have would, did that happen when they were infants, right? As opposed to Ten-year-old boys.
0: There's a lot of stuff about shame with his father. Um, he's ashamed of Christy. He's ashamed of his daughter mm-hmm. when she becomes pregnant. And then after he dies, and they're all sitting around the bar, and Christy's trying to say, like, let's, let's sing songs for my father. And people are like, oh, nobody like, nobody liked that guy. Like,
1: and then we get into a big brawl, and we take the till,
0: right. Big Irish bar fight.
1: I mean, goodness.
0: <laughs> what is your best scene?
1: It's probably the restaurant
0: mm. where
1: he's kind of rejected by. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, Eileen Cole. Fiona Shaw's the actress's name. Right. So he's kind of puts himself out there and he's out trying to hang out with these arty people. And it's definitely one of those scenes that makes me actually like shudder. Like, oh, no, you know, and I, I have a hard time watching people be embarrassed. It was, it was actually a tough scene.
0: Yeah.
1: To really kind of, you know, you just know he's walking into it. Because like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go out and get more drinks. And no, oh, we'll don't have any more drinks. Right. And that things are going to kind of go downhill. Because the times when they go back and forth, there's only a few times in the film where they show things from Christie's perspective. Right. Uh, at The beginning at the end. A little bit at the restaurant, kind of looking at everybody straight on in their chairs, mm-hmm. to kind of say, "Oh, well, this is how the world is seeing you." We see all these lovely images of Christy being wheeled around by his friends, and like he's one of the guys. He kicks a soccer ball. He's the king of the bonfire, and but I'm always waiting for people to, to take advantage of him or leave him out or something bad to happen.
0: See that that also sort of echoes what I was ta- what I was thinking of about this. His connection to his father and this legacy of his father, because his father can't stand to be embarrassed or shamed either. Don't talk to me like
1: that in front of the children.
0: Right. Don't talk to me like that in front of the children when he's lost his job, but he doesn't tell his wife that he's lost his job. She has to find out that they don't have as much money and they're eating porridge at the table and his son's too good for it. It's like his his uh, emotion is to when he's embarrassed or ashamed, it goes to anger, and that's what it makes me think of Christy in that moment. Is yeah, he's embarrassed table, yeah. and he's ashamed of the mistake that he made, and so it makes him angry at everybody else, at himself.
1: Yeah. What about you?
0: Where he's learning to talk, I call it the too much hope, too much hope
2: scene. Mm. Is that Arrow Christie up there? Huh? Does that sound like Harold Christie? Sounds a lot better. Not to me, it doesn't. Are you a mad woman? When she can understand your child for the first time. I always understood him. Oh well, nobody else ever did.
0: At least he can function now.
2: Something in that voice that it disturbs me. What do you mean? Too much hope in it. What? There's too much hope in it. Fly so told us that we know not of this conscience doesn't make towers of a own.
0: Uh, it's when he's learning Hamlet and he's just reciting the monologue from Hamlet Hamlet over and over again, the to be or not to be. And his voice starts becoming more and more clear so that his father is able to hear him. And his mom, played by Brenda Fricker, who I'm going to be talking about quite a bit on this podcast. So good. Um, oh, my God. So good. Brenda Fricker, she makes this sort of pained face and she says, it doesn't sound like him. It doesn't sound like Christy. And his dad says, oh, yeah, it's because he sounds a lot better. And she says, no, it it sounds like he has hope, like too much hope. Mm -hmm. And it's just this, it's so, it's so sad because it's this mom who understood her child and loved her child for who he was. And now he's growing into something else that is going to be more articulate and maybe more accepted into society, but she's losing, she's losing the son that she loved, that she took to church with her, that she could understand what he was saying, even if, even if he wasn't able to speak, like, um, it's that sense of loss, but knowing that he's doing something that's going to be important for him, but she's losing, she's losing a piece of him.
1: Yeah, the the well, I could always understand them, that bond and mothers and children. And you can you can see it. and I've seen it with friends who've had children who've had speech challenges that they could always understand them. Yeah. And that when she talks about the hope, you know, I see it that she's talking about not just not really Christy, like kind of globally and what he's moving into, but really seeing that he likes Eileen.
0: Yeah, that, that relationship. That, yeah
1: and that that is going to be a letdown. And I think that it's interesting because that's actually an experience that every parent has, you know, particularly when you're, when your child is dabbling in the ways of love right. that it's like, Oh man, I just, I'm, I'm worried this is not, this is not going to end well. And, and, and having that is such a natural parental experience
0: mm-hmm. yeah you see wow. the heartbreak on the horizon oh, but you yeah. can't you can't step into that and like take it take that for them nope. like they have to you, take that hit for themselves you
1: can't talk them out of it
0: yeah well that gets me to best performance which I'm I'm on the Brenda Fricker train I don't know about you
1: I loved her in this film
2: what do you think you're doing Building right a room for you Don't be mad. Baby, if you have a room of your own, i start painting again. You have my heart broken, Christy Brown. Sometimes I think you are my heart. Look, if I could give you my legs, I would gladly take yours. What's wrong with you, Christy? I'm sorry, man.
0: This is funny, because now that we've seen her and Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie, we have seen the movies of all of the... Well, this is spoilers, but we've seen the movies of all of the winners of the major acting categories. Yes, that's true. At the Academy Awards. So we saw Denzel Washington... In Glory, we saw Jessica Tandy and Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. So of all of those, what Brenda Fricker's doing, in which is different from everyone else that we've seen when, everyone else is doing sort of big performances. Her performance is so subtle compared to everybody else. She's not doing anything big. She's not doing anything flashy. But it's the honesty of the performance that just makes it really compelling.
1: And it makes me wonder, like, when I watch this, because this is one of those movies, and I've enjoyed this on all the movies that we've watched, where I like to go into IMDb then and be like, oh, what? You know, this is a long time ago. Like, who was in this movie that, like, I didn't know, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, some of the kids in the neighborhood that are in this movie or one of his... Many siblings have gone on to be a writer, or to do all these other things. And I looked at Brenda Fricker and I'm like, where have you been, girl? What have you been doing?
0: <laughs> you know, like, you're Time great. to kill. I, I, when I a, first saw her, I was like, oh, it's a lady from A Time to Kill.
1: <laughs> it's like, there's been, there's a ton of, because she could have totally been in that, you know, Judy Dench train, yeah. right? Uh, but, I mean, she's also, she's a stage actress as well as being... A film actress as well. Um, Oh, fun fact! Do you know her connection to Macaulay Culkin? No. She plays the homeless woman in Home Alone Two in New York. Home Alone Two, which
0: also stars the president. She's one (laughs) degree from the president. (laughs) Oh no.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, so in terms of my best performance, you know, I loved loved Brenda. Uh, You know, but I, you got to give it up for Daniel Day Lewis in this movie I think yeah
0: I. it's hard for me to differentiate sometimes when you're talking about biopics and especially about biopics of people who have specific physical traits or speaking styles or you know whatever like how much of it is acting and how much of it is mimicry and mm-hmm. what's, what's the difference between the two I've got some stats about the movie
1: stats 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 stats
0: stats This movie opened on November 10th, 1989. Odd release date. Nowadays we would call that an Oscar release cuz anything yeah. October and later is an yeah. Oscar release. Back not then, not then, pre-Thanksgiving isn't necessarily Not a hot time. Hot time. Domestic gross of 14 million dollars. <laughs> Flop.
1: <laughs> but how much did it cost to make?
0: Probably not that much, but nobody, no, clearly nobody saw it. Um, yeah. It was the number 70 grossing movie of 1989. It is the number 4,407th top grossing movie of all time.
1: Oh, no, I am frightened as to what its pairs are on the list. Okay. okay.
0: If you're going down to 4,407, you are going to be in the midst of some crazy stuff. So here's your triple feature. Oh, God. Okay. My left foot is between Serk freak the <laughs> vampire's assistant. <laughs> what? I feel like it's self-explanatory. This also has a colon. Serk <laughs> Dufrique <laughs> du colon, the vampire's assistant.
1: 2009...
0: Oh, wow. teenager
1: darren shane meets a mysterious man at a freak show who turns out to be a vampire it sounds like one of your synopses after a series of events darren must leave his normal life and go on the road with the cirque du freak and become a vampire
0: how dare you insult my synopses
1: oh um, my Lord. that sounds
0: like a classic great start to our triple feature Sector Freak, Vampire Resistant, My Left Foot, and then on the other side is The Arrival, which I believe is a Charlie Sheen vehicle about aliens, I think.
1: Yes, 1996, it is goateed Charlie Sheen.
0: There we go.
1: Zane, an astronomer, discovers intelligent alien life, but the aliens are keeping a deadly secret and will do anything to stop Zane from learning it.
0: This is quite the night that you have ahead of you if you watch these three movies.
1: Golly.
0: (laughs) My Left Foot has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think I say this every time. That's got to be the highest Rotten Tomatoes score we've Uh, had.
1: You want to
0: say that. Roger Ebert says, My Left Foot is a great film for many reasons, but the most important is that it gives us such a complete picture of this man's life. Four out of four stars. Roger likes the warts and all.
1: He does. He does. He appreciates that.
0: Pauline Kale of The New Yorker, as you will note, featured in the trailer for this movie. Yes. <laughs> at the start of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> says this is a great, exhilarating movie. We've gotten all positive Pauline Kale. This wow. year. Hmm. And I think this may be the last year we have Pauline Kale, so mm. maybe she was lightening up, lightening up in her later years year of criticism. How did it do at the Oscars? It won two Oscars. We've already spoiled it.
1: Acting Brenda yep. Frick and Dana Day Lewis. Best actor. Okay, how the many was it nominated actress. for, though?
0: Nominated for two others besides Best Picture
1: so we already said Jim Sheridan
0: Jim Sheridan best director
1: best foreign film
0: no the other one's a classic what oh um classic answer oh score no oh no oh oh no no
1: no oh it's adapted <laughs> screenplay adapted
0: <laughs> screenplay adapted screenplay
1: sorry I'm sorry <laughs> from sorry. the book
0: My Left Foot
2: by Christy Brown yeah. adapted screenplay I love you Island. and I love you Christy no I really love him. I love you all. That's good. I even love Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you like Peter Christie because we're going to get married in six months. Christie, what do you think of that? Okay, this is funny Sure. Huh? That's okay. okay.
0: So let's talk a bit about the legacy of this movie, and I want to kind of get away from the obvious because i i was I was thinking it's it's going to be obvious if we try to talk about like physical, mental, emotional difference portrayed on film and stuff. And we kind of did that a little bit with Rain Man last year.
1: Well, and the let this is the lack of healthcare support around that sort right, of right.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk. I I actually want to have a conversation about biopics as a movie genre Um, because looking at this year's films, we've already talked about two other movies that involve real-life characters, if not real-life stories. So we had Glory. We had Born on the Fourth of July. And now we have this movie. So that's three out of ten. That's a third of the movies we've talked about. Mm -hmm. are about real people. And so I did some digging too when I was thinking about the Oscar for this movie. So um, uh, Daniel D. Lewis winning the Oscar for this movie. I was like, how likely is it, the Academy liking to award actors who are playing real people? So I went back and I, I said, I wonder if someone has compiled how much more likely you are to win an Academy Award if you play a real life person. And what I was able to find is that of all of the awards for Best Actor and Best Actress, 32% of the Best Actor winners played real people, so about a third, Hmm. and 25% of Best Actresses played real people, so a quarter of the winners. So this gets me back on to this idea that we had kind of talked about with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is... What's being rewarded when we talk about acting as an art form? Are we rewarding someone's ability to mimic another person or the style that another person would sort of take on? Or are, we, are we trying to say, like, this person made me feel something through their portrayal? And maybe the emotions that I brought to this with how I thought about Judy Garland makes me feel more? when Renee Zellweger portrays her? Or is it, man, Renee Zellweger was a dead ringer for Judy Garland. Like, what is it that we're awarding, right? Because the Freddie Mercury debate is kind of the same thing.
1: Well, is it like, do we like already having some sort of yardstick for comparison? Like, do Mm. we like already having something to bounce it off of? Do I like to have some kind of starting place as a human being? Whether it is I have an emotional reaction to to them, or it's that I have some concept of that person... And then mm-hmm. I'm able to weigh their performance. Is
0: it a way that. of identifying skill? Like somebody's skill? So it's like, if I know what I think Elton John acts like, then now I can kind of gauge how good of an actor Taron Egerton is for playing Elton John.
1: Yeah, because it makes you wonder, then, what is what are the worst biopics? What are the times when, when somebody really falls down and uh and it just does not work. Um, so you know, like not great biopics like uh Ashton Kutcher yeah, as Steve Kutcher. Jobs, Jennifer Love Hewitt as Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, yeah, like when when people are like not well and cast just doesn't go well.
0: Right. What are we supposed to take away from these stories? Like, are these supposed to be aspirational stories? Are they supposed to be just kind of documents of a life well lived?
1: Like Is the biopics that... that I feel kind of drawn to, like whether it's Selena or what's love got to do with it. It's, it's when you've overcome something and you're offering up the background, you know, straight out of Compton, you know, you're mm-hmm. offering the background story to, and I think in those cases, musical biopics, have a right. particular category. And it's like, what is the pain that's fueling the work?
0: Yeah, it's like seeing a reenactment of behind the music.
1: Yeah. You look at like Jeffrey Rush and Shine or things like that when, when there's a struggle that's involved, but their you know, struggle is often paired with, with genius. And so how, how do those two things live together?
0: That's where it can become a little complicated, I think. As an art form, because if you go into a project thinking, man, I love Tina Turner. I'm going to tell the story about how she overcomes the abuse that she suffers at the hands of Ike Turner. Okay, but now I run the difficulty of possibly making Tina Turner into a more sympathetic figure than maybe she is in real life. Because we know that people are people They're They've got good parts. They've got bad parts. So if I'm going to make a well-rounded character, I want to show that she can overcome, but I also want to show that she's a person. I feel I think like there's
1: always uh, a danger, though, for over- oversimplification in biopics.
0: Right. I feel like that's the problem with a biopic is that it's easy to lean to one side and say this person is great, this person is a saint because they overcame difficulty and rose above. They can quickly become hagiography, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas what I appreciated about My Left Foot is the same thing I think that Roger Ebert was giving voice to. This guy's complicated. You can like Christy Brown in moments, and there are moments where you can think, man, that guy's a jerk. I think that that's good storytelling because it gives me a better picture of who this guy is. And if that's the goal, Mm -hmm. then then this movie hit it.
1: I agree. And I think particularly when you're dealing with because of the time period of this movie and having somebody with a physical difference, there would have definitely been a lot of opportunities to really sanctify him. Yeah, that that this film in lesser hands could have done that. I don't think, though, because of the book, they could do that because I I'm very doubtful. That Christy Brown lets himself off the hook at all. No. The more complex and the more you actually step into the complexity, I think the better a biopic becomes.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's more to say about this topic, but we'll leave it there. Yeah. And we'll move on to a classic going on 30 question. Who is this movie for? This movie is for Betsy. That's my. (laughs) It's for. It's for sentimental Irish that's right. <laughs> People. <laughs> um, who is this movie for, Betsy?
1: Foreign film lovers. Okay.
0: Yeah. And
1: they evidently didn't like to go see
0: it. didn't in want the movie to go theater. see it in the movie theater. That's for sure. <laughs> I could see someone feeling patriotic about this movie, saying, like, yeah, that's the Irish spirit that I love. What is your rating for this movie out of five?
1: I am giving this movie a 3.5 out of
0: 5. 3.5. That's yeah. kind of middle of the road. What is your thinking for the
1: 3.5? I liked aspects of this movie. Is it something that I'm going to return to? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. this It kind of lives now as this capsule portrait. That I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But... The storytelling didn't hit me in the exact place I wanted. And, and it just it just didn't connect in mm-hmm. the way I thought, really thought it was going to, which I actually find this 3.5 is strange for me. You know, this was you know, you're you're talking to like the schmaltzy schmaltzy schmaltz, right? Like cries and not a tear, not a tear. Really? More, more cringing, more cringing in this movie than crying.
0: The, the restaurant scene is maybe one of the cringiest things that we've and seen. And that's why this I
1: picked year. it. Because I wanted to fast forward through it, but I didn't.
0: Because
1: I knew it was coming.
0: We're a little divided on this movie. Yeah? Because I actually, I love this movie. I I thought it was excellent. I gave it a 4.5 out of
1: 5. Whoa! Whoa.
0: I know. I was really, I was really surprised by how much I liked it.
1: Maybe we're really realizing that I just need to be spoon fed (laughs) (laughs) American movies with simple narratives that like, I'm, I'm really, I think I might've thought I was a little more cosmopolitan than I actually am. (laughs) Oh dear.
0: This is an excellent film. Brenda Fricker is incredible. And the story, honestly, it, it keeps coming back for me. It comes back to the format of the movie. The story holds to a tight engaging format because I was really sold on the chapter the chapters of a life version of this. And and like that framing made me think back on things from earlier in the movie before sort of like trying to forecast things that I may see later on in the movie. Like everything felt pretty fluid because of the way that the the movie was structured and so th- i think that that's where i was really sold on it
1: and i was not as excited about the story so
0: <laughs> clearly it's
1: interesting the things you like are the things that i'm like and eh, nope sorry
0: <laughs> all right uh one last question before we move okay. on yes why did the academy nominate this besides the fact that harvey weinstein filled their pockets with money
1: we've talked about the Academy nominates things because it hits them in the fields. Right. So this might've been hitting them in the fields.
0: Happy ending, happy ending yes, alert. Happy
1: ending. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, Every ding, time ding. we have
0: a happy ending from now on, I'm going to hit like a buzzer.
1: i right. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I think it also, they, they, you have said that, you know, they like to take a chance on young, like, a, you know, first time where really hits it out of the park. Like they, they like that uh-huh. as a narrative and a story. So I think uh-huh. Jim Sheridan, fulfills some of that for them as well.
0: I am going to say it's the performance. It's the Daniel Day-Lewis performance. It's showy. So that you want him at your Oscars telecast so that when he gets up on stage, people are like, oh my gosh! That's the guy? (laughs) That handsome guy? Like, yeah.
1: That's
0: (laughs) that's what you want. All right, That is it. What do we got coming up? What's next? We're almost done! I know. This was Movie number eight for us, Betsy. We have two more movies left. I can't believe it. Next up, uh, oh boy. It's Steven Soderbergh's first feature film. It's called No Capital Letters, all lowercase letters, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Woo, Betsy. Are you excited?
1: I don't think I've ever seen this. Really? A little racy. A little bit of a racy title.
0: It's, it's a racy title. Betsy, thank you for kicking the soccer ball around with me on this my left foot conversation.
1: You better watch out, Greg. I bite. <laughs> you got it. Anytime.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Definitely, Definitely. <laughs> will not charge the goalie.
1: Don't do it. <laughs>